Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's episode is with Greg Lawrence. He is at SUNY Brockport and he works on the Great Lakes Coastal Wetlands Monitoring Program. I don't know that's a bit of a mouthful, but I'd actually heard of this program before because it's fairly similar to the wetland restoration monitoring program I work on. Um, called CRIMS here in Louisiana, which you've heard me talk about plenty, and I'll talk a little bit about in this episode as well. So Greg and I uh, talk a lot about wetlands, our backgrounds with wildlife, specifically birds, um, which our experiences have been very similar, so we nerd out a little bit about birds and wetlands, so that was fun. Um, And yeah, and this is the second episode in Wetlands Week, so stay tuned. There's two more coming out this week after this one. Um, so enjoy my conversation with Greg and actually also there'll be an episode about doing fieldwork during this pandemic coming out in a couple of weeks, which Greg also contributed. So you'll hear more from him in a couple of weeks in that episode as well. All right. Thank you. Enjoy. Hi, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. I literally just got back from being out in the field. I'm sorry. Yeah, no worries. I was uh, testing, a, we had put a new boat motor on because we had some issues over the last uh, last like couple weeks, basically, yeah. and now it's, it's not in good shape. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, so I was just out in the field. It was a good excuse to test it. We were pulling invasive water chestnut and uh, at one of our research sites, and then, uh, so it was a good excuse to use boat motor. <laughs> yeah, what is invasive water chestnut? What is that? Yeah, so water chestnut is a, uh, I believe it's from, it's from Asia, and I think they actually eat it over there. I believe it's actually a food item over there, and like, supposedly kind of interesting. Take a look. Interesting. But, um, yeah, but it's it's really heavily invasive um, around here in in the Great Lakes region, and it's uh, like one plant can basically spread to like ten the next year, so oh, it um, it can spread really really quickly, and uh-huh. it's. Basically, this thing on the surface has all these like rosettes and um, the chestnuts. I actually have like an old one. I had one. You know what's here? Here we go. It is run away to invade somewhere. <laughs> yeah, this is actually what one looks like right here. It looks like a spaceship. Yeah, ex- <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so it's like this big spiky thing. So it Weird. attaches really well to. Um, like birds, like mute swans, also invasive, or geese or something. Um, boats obviously can drag it through, and these these little chestnuts drop in, and uh, yeah, so that's that's basically how it starts. Yeah, so, yeah, there. Awesome. It's a bad invasive. It's not. A, it's. Not, I guess there's no good invasive. Um, <laughs> very few. Yeah, very few. Yeah. Very few. I wouldn't say good. Neutral invasive. Neutral. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. like maybe cattle egrets, I guess. You know? Yeah, yeah, and they came here naturally too, even. Oh yeah, well, I don't actually know how they got here, but I knew they were not originally from here. Yeah, they they they're actually really cool because they came here kind of on their own, from what I from what I know, and they've actually like naturally colonized this area of the world, and I think they I think they originated from Africa. Don't quote me yeah, on that. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah, so they've like they kind of moved their way over here. And, Actually, this area, we used to have them nesting back in like the 70s and 80s here in, in uh, Rochester. Now, now we get maybe a couple a year, but they did use to nest um, at the kind of peak of their range expansion. It's kind of cool. Interesting. I wonder how they got across the ocean, because I feel like egrets aren't particularly great flyers. <laughs> yeah, not at all. 
No. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, they have, you know, oftentimes some of those really weird rare birds, you know, are ship assisted. So I wonder if uh, like one somehow made it across on a ship or something like that. Yeah, maybe. That's a, a great question. <laughs> I have logistical questions about how they got here. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, so uh, I am a wetland scientist myself. I'm in Louisiana. Uh, I work on a huge coastal monitoring project. My background's in wildlife. And I do this podcast on the side for funsies. <laughs> awesome. That sounds so, eerily similar to my background. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Back, my yeah. background's in birds and wildlife. I run a big monitoring program out of here in a wetland site. Hmm. Oh, we're the same person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so what I do is, is I work as a research scientist here at SUNY Brockport. And uh, I run a handful of, of grants doing work on the Great Lakes, uh, specifically working in wetlands. I actually did my undergrad and grad work here as well, so I've been at Brockport for a long time. <laughs> but it's a it's really a great school, and um, my main project that I work on is a part of the Great Lakes Coastal Wetlands Monitoring Program, which is a big EPA program. That's uh, it's now a program in perpetuity. So it was originally developed back in 2011 um, as a project through the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, and now has been switched into a program. So we at Brockport, we cover this kind of, this Eastern basin of the Great Lakes. Uh, usually our crews go between about Sandusky, Ohio, all the way up to Belleville, Ontario in the Bay of Quinte region. So we cover um, a good portion of Lake Ontario and a little bit of Eastern Lake Erie. And then we, we often trade out sites with other crews like at Central Michigan or uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada. So that's, that's really the majority of my, my work. Um, we have a couple other uh, local restoration projects, um, including one that I was just working on a bit today. Also, all funded through Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which is, uh, I, gotta, I gotta plug that one in a little bit. <laughs> it's an important, uh, it's a really, really important source of, of funding and for, uh, for these areas, for both you know, the local communities, the economy, and, and then also the environment. And so um, I grew up around here, so these projects you know, aren't, it's not just work for me. Um, a lot of these projects are things that we've been pushing for in the community um, for a long time. And uh, things, you know, improving areas that have a, you know, are kind of near and dear to my heart, at least. So uh, the Braddock Bay Restoration Project was implemented by the Army Corps of Engineers um, in 2016 through 18. Uh, it was prolonged because of uh, record high lake levels here on Lake Ontario back in 2017. And we had some last year in 2019. And uh, so we're doing the monitoring here at SUNY Brockport. Everything, most, mostly focusing on vegetation. Uh, we're also looking at things um, like um, basically northern pike, uh, how they're using it, a lot of breeding marsh birds. Uh, one specific thing I've, I've been working on um, on the barrier beach is uh, basically the use of shorebirds uh, in migration. Cool. We, we've lacked a lot of shorebird habitat over the years. So, um, you know, I started noticing it when the spine was put in, the spine of this constructed barrier beach there and uh, turnstones were already using it like right after it was constructed. So, and this was something that wasn't built then. Um, we've had piping plovers come in. Oh, cool. uh, they haven't bred yet, but I'm holding out hope. Um, and then we've done a couple other monitoring projects at some other wetlands in that Braddock Bay, Braddock Bay area. And uh, just this week, uh, or last week, there was a press conference on delisting this Rochester embayment area of concern, which there haven't been many that have been delisted. And so mm -hmm. we're 
the fact that we're almost done. The Braddock Bay project is actually the last real big thing. So yeah, so basically I, I do a lot of wetland work, but a lot of my focus uh, personally is it in work, working with birds, but it's, it's pretty much everything from monitoring fish, water quality, invertebrates, plants, birds, venerans, everything. Yeah, so my master's degree, I studied shorebirds. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> They're the yeah. best. <laughs> and so I've heard of your wetland monitoring project because, um, have you heard of CRIMS, the Coastwide Reference Monitoring Project in Louisiana? Oh, yes. Yeah. I work, I work yep. on CRIMS. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah, so we could just nerd out on like wetland restoration and monitoring. <laughs> <laughs> I could all day. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because I, I would love to know like, you know, we use airboats almost exclusively, so I'd love to know just like how field work is there versus here, and just just for my own nerdiness, really. <laughs> oh yeah, airboats would be wonderful. That'd be great. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to try uh, one here. <laughs> yeah, they're great and also horrible. <laughs> depends. <laughs> yeah, oh depends gosh. on the situation. Yeah, that all sounds awesome because you know I love wetlands and birds. Nothing better. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what kind of field work. So what are some of the challenges? We, um, so I, just to, to preface this, I started this position kind of running running this field crew and, and working on the, basically managing these projects and uh, basically after the 2018 field season. And my first full field season in 2019, we dealt with record high lake levels. So <laughs> we dealt with shorelines being flooded or, you know, moved quite yeah quite a ways inland or whatever the new new definition of inland is mm -hmm. and uh flooded boat launches of course mm -hmm. we dealt with not being able to fish sites because you know the fike nets are we're designed to fish in a meter you know water that's a meter deep and <laughs> when you can't find any of those areas in a wetland well what do you do and so now it's it moved into this year, which is fortunately we didn't have to deal with high lake levels on Lake Ontario. Although I know a lot of the other crews had to deal with very near record highs again on a lot of the upper lakes. But we uh, we were in good shape with that. But yeah, the the pandemic definitely threw a a big wrench into our plans. And um, right as kind of field season was starting was when it was really dipping down quite a bit. So that was we were we were fortunate for for a lot of those reasons. Um, in general, they they actually our crew and and all of our work was able to really happen. Um, just the biggest issues were really almost on my end actually, is just as a manager and figuring out logistics. Um, mm -hmm. But all I gotta say is I'm I'm just I'm fortunate that we were able to do the work. Um, a lot of the students, you know, they're this is what their master's thesis or some of their undergrad work depends on. So the fact that they were able to get out and do this despite everything is just yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for it. Oh man. Well, it sounds like you haven't had like a normal field season yet, <laughs> if there is such a thing. <laughs> no, I can't wait. Like, I, I don't know what it would even be like to have a normal field season. <laughs> so, right. We actually weren't able to sample all the sites we were supposed to, but the sites that we got to in New York, we were able to actually sample this year. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think that that's probably true in a lot of field work. I mean, it's been true kind of in our field work. Like, it's taken us longer to get to sites, and then there's a few sites we haven't got to that just got smoked by Hurricane Laura. So I think there's just going to be some gaps in data, and I think that that's just going to be the case across the board. So Yeah, I think so. I know there are some other crews that definitely, at least for some of our projects, that just weren't able to, just mm -hmm. weren't able to do it. I, I think there were some crews that weren't able to get out and 
you know, if, if you're not allowed to go into a country and sample those sites, it's out of your control. You know, you, uh, at yeah. that point, you've done everything you can to kind of sample those sites. And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The bit, one of the ones at Braddock, so our, on the Braddock Bay project, our, um, we usually have our submerged aquatic vegetation or SAV sampling. And um, we basically go out usually with three people. So it's basically, I, I'm just there to drive the boat and I let them kind of, um, one of the, the grad student who runs that, she uh, basically, we put all the points on uh, GIS and then we converted them actually to a Google Maps file. So we can actually just see where she is out there. And then you can actually rename the point and also like change it that it's done. It's really easy. And so basically she navigates points and navigates to the points. And, and then, uh, you know, I turn the boat motor off when we get there. And uh, it usually goes really fast because you have one person throwing the rake out to get the vegetation, one person doing data, and then oftentimes I can even leave, leave the boat running. I just pull the motor up out of the water. That way we can just zip to the next site. So mm -hmm. our sampling is outside of the boat motor issues, which are, you know, <laughs> a little outside of the pandemic uh, problems. Um, it's taken us double the time because, you know, one of us, so I, I've been doing a lot of data entry or we've been switching off with ID and, um, and doing the rake tosses. And so it's actually, it's doubled the time for that, but we've kind of, we've gotten a little bit of a system that we've, we've been fast. But um, I, I think outside of just adding a little bit more time into it, you know, we haven't, again, we've been fortunate to not really have any major issues besides like travel and logistics. Mm -hmm. um, to really have to get around and try to find creative ways, ways around. Yeah, that's good. Field work, I feel like on the whole, um, you know, you're, by nature, usually not really around people that aren't the people you went there with. So that's relatively safe, I feel like. Yeah, for sure. And in mm -hmm. terms of problems, I mean, it's field work. <laughs> right. It wouldn't be field work if, if things worked perfectly. Like oh, I've yeah. never heard of, of any sort of field season or sampling where things work perfectly. It doesn't <laughs> <exist>. always happen. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't exist. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then like boat issues on top of pandemic on top of whatever else, you know, gonna happen. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And well, that sounds like y'all have found um, yeah, great, great ways to, to deal with doing fieldwork during this pandemic. Sounds very similar to what we've done, basically. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm, you know, I guess I, I think we're just fortunate, you know, that, that um, you know, the case cases went down really as field work was starting and that, um, you know, they're, they're still really good. We have students moving in today and, and yesterday now, which will be interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we've been very fortunate to have very low case rates here. You know, I, I honestly can't imagine doing it in some of the states that have been hit really hard uh, now and are still, you know, the cases are still rising in, in many of yeah. these states. I can't imagine that. And, uh, you know, I think, um, I think we had plenty of logistical issues and and uh, issues obviously not getting to certain sites and you know across mm -hmm. the border and then in other states but the fact that we could actually get out and have our crew out and you know so many of these grad students so many of the undergrads you know they rely on us for experience but also for their livelihood and just money mm -hmm. right so i mean the fact that we could actually get out there and, and do the work and, and that they could get the experience and uh and get paid and, and get their research done is is i think we're just fortunate and I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's interesting here because where Louisiana is at now is only, it's pretty much the same as it was in the beginning. Like we had a lull in like 
May and June, where it got a little bit lower, but Louisiana has just been like rampant, basically. Gosh. Fortunately for us, you know, like we're out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's fortunate till your airboat gets stuck. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yep. yeah we, we don't see too many people. We're mostly just stopping for fuel. Yeah. They always, always basically say that the most dangerous thing we do sampling on this project is driving. Oh, yeah. It's the thing where there's mo mo like more parts to fail. Like I have eight tires that one of them could fail, you know, because double axle trailer or people just, you know, there's a lot of people around, you know, I, we've almost been hit a bunch of times. Like people don't see the airboat somehow. I don't understand how, oh you gosh. know, or whatever. And yeah, that's the most dangerous part, honestly. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's the travel and that's mm -hmm. when you're increasing that instead of two vehicles with, with two trailers to, you know, those two vehicles with two trailers plus four other other cars, you know, that, yeah. that really increases a lot. And then if you're like, you know, if it's a roadside launch or something like that or a small boat launch, then you're packed in there and then you have more chance of getting hit and it, it's just, yeah. Yeah, not... like where, where do you put those vehicles? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's tough on some of those roadside sites finding some some areas sure. to pull over that aren't putting yourself in the wetland and but also <laughs> right. not in the road. <laughs> yeah, no. sure. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like boat launches there are very similar to boat launches here, where there's probably like some nice public ones, and then just like oh, there's a ditch right there, launch into that. Yes, that's that's exactly how it is, and um, yeah, the, the public ones at parks and everything are are wonderful, but then you get mm -hmm. to. Um, some wildlife management areas uh, that have just one little, you know, it's really for a canoe launch or something like that, yeah. or, you know, where you're, it's just all, it's very steep rock mud. It's just not easy. <laughs> We're fortunate yeah. our crew, we have some people who are really like experienced with that and, and, you know, who actually know how to intelligently launch a boat and everything. Of course, we do the trainings and stuff too, but them having that experience in some other areas mm -hmm. like that is, is tough. So yeah. just thankful for that. Yeah, boat launching and driving and trailering and all that is one of those things like, yes, you can take the class, it teaches you all of it, but like, man, something crazy is going to happen or it's going to be super windy or something else, and you're gonna, or you're going to like go down a dirt road that you can't turn around on that you thought there was something at the end, like which we've had happen. You're going to get in a bind somewhere and the only way to like deal with that is to have the experience and like yeah. just be really good at it. Yeah, it's a really great skill to have. Yeah, it takes time. That was one thing I couldn't do actually with, with COVID was uh, I couldn't do the typical trailer and boat training like I usually do. Uh, it, was, it was tough because usually I'll, I'll sit in the car with them and you know, a lot of times I'll take them out to one of the empty, like far, far away from campus parking lots and just mm -hmm. be like, hey, back into this spot. And then, yeah. you know, all right, turn, turn this way and back in there, but don't go past. Yeah. Or, you know, we go to some of the local boat launches and try to launch there and, and just at least try to get them if they've had no experience, some, at least some experience and get used to just how to turn, turn the wheel and, and turn the trailer mm -hmm. as well. And it's, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that I can actually explain that to people. I am just like, I don't know. I do it by feel. <laughs> like, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, it's, yeah it's I've seen people hard. try to, and I think what I learned, people try to, and I'm like, it was almost more confusing. And I'm like, uh -huh. I just got to like, just, just do it a bunch of times. It's like, yeah. like riding a bike, you <laughs> play an instrument, like playing a sport instrument, something like that. It's just one of those things you have to learn by just doing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's such a weird skill. Where our boats are stored, they're in a storage facility, you know, and they're, the airboat's pretty wide, and so it doesn't, it only barely fits, and it's really tight, 
and like you can't see what you're doing because you know big boat you can only see that outside and so I really at this point I'm just I've been doing it for six years at this point I'm just like I know I have to hit the grate with this tire at this angle to like get the boat in there right uh, oh my it's just like yeah just by touch at this point which is weird because I can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy. Hey, at least it's yeah. not by touch, like, oh, I hit the dock, or oh, I hit a tree, or something like that. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god, That's, that's I, crazy. I honestly think, like, with using a boat for field work, that the, that the most complicated part is getting the boat, like, coming back to launch, and, like, at the dock, or whatever, or then getting it back on the trailer, like, especially if it's windy, or whatever. That's, like, the most nerve-wracking part. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the one that you know, when I'm, I'm looking at new crews out in the field, like they, um, that's the biggest thing that, that takes time. And like an efficient crew, obviously, you know, there's a field work and, and that stuff, you know, the actual field sampling and, you know, getting into a good rhythm with that. But when you have experienced crews or, or even when you have a new crew, I had a fully new crew last year, first time in the 10 years of this project. And it was, of course, my first year too. Uh, <laughs> we had a, a totally new crew and it was, it was interesting because that stuff takes a while and like even just unloading the truck, you know, who, and then, you know, who puts a drain plug in, who, who does the ratchet yeah. straps, who turns the motor, like who grabs mm -hmm. the key, who grabs life jackets, the pedals, all that stuff. And the first couple of weeks, it's like chaos. And then yeah. by, by week two or week three, it's just a well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. And we had mostly returning people this year and, and it was like, it was, it was incredible to watch because you know, no one even has to say anything. I mean, you, you might, but everyone just yeah. knows what they do. It's it, you're mm -hmm. that you're in that much of a rhythm that, yeah. And it, and it yeah. makes that process, which can be very complicated, especially at rough boat launches, especially with multiple boats, especially if the boat launch is busy, that's uh -huh. another one. And, um, it just makes that process so much smoother and, and mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's night and day. <laughs> Yeah, I always joke that my coworker and I, we could spend the whole day and not say a word and do our work just as quickly because we've been working together for six years. I'm like, I can, I know what she's about to do. She knows what I'm about to do. And we just like, it's a well oiled machine. Of course, we're chit chatting the whole time anyway. But you know, yep. uh, but yeah, it's usually not about like who put the plug in, you know, on the boat. Oh, yeah. You, know? yeah, you just know that person did it or you know you did it. Like, it's just yeah. not even a, it's not even a question. Six yeah. years, dude, that's, lo that's a long time. Oh my gosh. Like that, yeah, yeah. It's, that's some it's, like extra level teamwork right there. Oh well, gosh. it's awesome because she's one of my favorite people, um, which I didn't know her when I started working with her, but you know, we, we operate the same way. So that makes it like, we, we work even more smoothly together because we have a lot of the same interests and we hang out outside of work too. <laughs> um, that's perfect. So oh. it, yeah, it's like going to do work with like one of my closest friends now, which doesn't really feel like work most of the time, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. It just that's that's helpful <laughs> yeah yeah and i and i th always say like environmental work and you know when when we're in the sciences and stuff like that yeah no one gets into this field no one gets into any of these fields especially wetland science right like when you're just out <laughs> in the mock you're living in waiter and no one gets into that just to get a job or like to make <laughs> right. money or something you know we're all in this field because we we love what we do and we're passionate about this kind of stuff mm -hmm. It's not one of those jobs. So, so it, it feels like it's work, but it doesn't feel like work to begin with. Yeah, agreed. And it makes it when you're like, you know, waist deep in some muck somewhere, it makes it just easier to deal with when you know that like, I chose this because I love this, even though this moment sucks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes, yes. Like, like it's fine.
So I would love to hear about the monitoring project and like why the water was high at Lake Ontario. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's a hot, hotly debated topic around here. Very politicized. It's oh, uh, is it? it's interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a yeah, that's that's a that's a fun topic around here. It's a it's a very 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 hotbed issue up by the lake. I mean, there are signs that are like, um, you know, like political sign yard signs and stuff. But there are ones that are like, you know, against the the lake level plan and stuff like that because people think that that's what caused the flooding, even though it's it's not. But you know, when when your house and your yard and everything is getting flooded, I mean, I I grew up up there. My parents still live up there on the water. I mean, it's, I understand how it is. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it stinks. You know, you want to put your anger somewhere because mm -hmm. you're angry and you're upset. And, and I honestly can't blame anyone for it. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's a very tough issue. But it was, it was really just, I mean, the answer to that, sorry to get on a tangent, but I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's just high water. In 2017, you know, this basin here in, in New York, Lake Ontario, was just really inundated. Um, and had record high rainfall throughout the spring. Um, and it's complicated anyways, because Lake Ontario is very different from a lot of the other lakes because uh, it's, it's basically a reservoir. And so it's had a power dam up on the St. Lawrence River um, since the late 50s, early 60s. So it is controlled through a plan. So, so naturally up until that time, um, the lakes would go through these you know, approximately to what, 10 to 30 year periods of, of highs and, and lows. Mm -hmm. And so when the St. Lawrence Seaway was, was constructed and, um, and the dam was constructed for power, basically it took away those periods of low water levels. And so the, the lake, the, that range of outcomes, right, that, that you typically get in a year um, for lake levels, uh, it got scrunched up. That, that bottom part of that range got, got moved way 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 inward and so now the the lakes are always kind of at that kind of middle to very high you know water levels throughout that mm -hmm. old plan so um and that caused a lot of issues for wetlands right so you know mm -hmm. basically the wetlands became this cat invasive cattail monoculture because conditions were perfect mm -hmm. um it was too high for the sedge meadow areas to grow um for the basically sedges and grasses and stuff like that so basically lost sedge meadow habitat in basically all the wetlands in Lake Ontario um, since the 60s. Uh, they, they're pretty much non-existent or very, very, very small and limited to like this little patch um, between the emergent marsh and the upland. So on top of erosion um, of things like beaches of wetlands, we lost, I think, 60 acres. I think it was 60 acres of wetland of Braddock Bay. I can't remember that it off the top of my head um since the 60s and we also lost the barrier beach that was naturally mm -hmm. there so you know to so for beaches uh, you need high lake levels obviously erode things away and bring that mm -hmm. sediment out into the lake and into the system and then uh, lower levels are what you need to basically replenish those beaches and so without those periods of low water we lost um lost the sedge meadow habitat and we lost a lot of the beaches and so that's what some of these restoration projects have, have worked on so fast forward to um, a couple of years ago, plan, uh, 2017, uh, January of 2017 was the first year that a very long awaited new regulation plan went into existence. This plan basically wanted, you know, it basically called for us in, in very general, it's a complex issue, but 
it, yeah. in a very general sense, it called for just a little increasing those ends of, you know, the, the range a little bit on either end, more so on the low end. But it did increase um, the highest high, according to the plan, obviously it certainly exceeded it, um, uh, by 2.4 inches, which isn't really that much more from what the old plan was. And the old plan's what's what's been bad for the lakeshore, all these, you know, everyone on the lakeshore and everything. Um, the flooding events in the last couple of years, these high water, it would have been worse actually with the old plan. Um, but the new plan implementation, and because this lake level plan has been pretty widely hated for a long time, both the new one and the old one, I mean, and, and understandably so by, you know, people who live there, um, you know, on the, uh, people who live on the lakeshore, the riparians as they, they call them, you know, basically call themselves, right? And um, so 2017 was that year of record high lake levels and record high rainfall. So that coinciding with the implementation of the new plan, correlation does not always equal causation, but in right. the minds of, of a lot of people who can just see this, you know, pretty obviously it's, oh, this, this new plan is terrible. We need to mm -hmm. get rid of this. We need to stop the plan and everything. Um, so it was, it was kind of a mess because you know, this plan mm -hmm. should have been really good for pretty much everyone involved. Um, but yeah, and then last year we had it again and it was even worse last year. Mm. So um, again, with the, the new plan still in. So again, people, you know, even though all the other lakes are, are or were at record levels um, last year in the Great Lakes, even despite that, you know, people are like, nope, it's the plan. But it's not that simple either, because right. you know, if you want to, you can't just let water out, especially in the in the winter, because you have to rely on ice levels. But then, if you let water out, you also don't want to flood out Montreal, mm -hmm. which is just downstream. So you have this major city that deals with flooding and everything, and also, you know, is fed by the Ottawa River, as well. And, and um, is the Ottawa River should, should know that. Um, and basically, so, you know, you can either flood Lake Ontario and provide relief for them, but you, then you flood out a huge city. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, there's a lot, of, it's a trade-off. And then there's sh yeah. shipping interests and power, and it's, mm -hmm. it's just, a, it's a mess. It's one of those things where you really can't please everyone, um, mm -hmm. but you can also please no one at the same <laughs> <Right>. time. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. Water management on the whole is very controversial. Um, and it sounds eerily similar to what we deal with here with the Mississippi River. Mm. You know, it's levied, but there's divert like, well, there are diversions, but there's also like spillways, like outflows, you know, like there's one above New Orleans and there's one above Baton Rouge, like to protect those cities. Um, yeah, it's, it's complicated and people tend to just latch on to the most tangible thing, like the plan or specific structure. Or something and it's not that it's so complicated it's never just one thing um oh, that's fascinating it's kind of weirdly comforting to know that uh, we're not the only ones dealing with water issues in that way um but also sucks because you know more people are dealing with it yeah it's a it's a really tough situation i mean i feel for everyone like, like i said i mean i grew up there my parents are still up there i know mm -hmm. tons of people who live there and it's you know it's it sucks and uh you know at the same time like you know i obviously want to look at the science and stuff behind it and sometimes you know we always look for something to blame and you know at some point you can <laughs> some point there is there's nothing there's nothing that could have stopped 
stopped it. And, you know, there's no, no lake level plan would have stopped this. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, just look at the upper lakes. I mean, they're all really high and dealing with the same issues. Um, sometimes overestimate, I think, I think in this case, it's one of those things where um, we kind of overestimate what we can do. We're like, <clears throat> you know, humans are pretty great engineers and we've built amazing things, right? Like the Panama Canal and, and like, you know, the dam and, and the seaway and everything, and, and which, is, which is incredible. It's an incredible feat. But in the end, we can only control so much. And, you know, we're still at the liberty of, of Mother Nature, essentially. And we can control it and we can have control over it and regulate this lake as much as we want. But there's still some things that are out of our control. And I don't think, you know, it's, it's hard for people to grasp that a little bit, especially when we have, like, at least some control over that situation, which I, I, I would guess yeah. is similar with the levees, right? Yeah, yeah, we have control until we don't, basically. Um, you know, we can build levees 40 feet tall, but we can't help it if the river level is lapping at the top of the levees because of record snowfall in the northern Midwest, you know, that winter before. Or, and also paired with crazy rainfall in April in, you know, Iowa or wherever. <laughs> you know, and then also, it's just, you know, we can only do what we can do. And in the end, we're really just trying to control nature or in some cases mimicking nature with engineering, like with, by diverting water out, you know, um, which is a solution since we can't just like let it all be free anymore because economics, but right. yeah, it's, it's so tough. Um, yeah. So complicated too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the lake levels are really, at the, I mean, like I was explaining, you know, they're really the root of a lot of our issues and a lot of the wetland degradation, um, the loss of beaches, all that kind of stuff. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the lake levels are, are the root of the issue. They are mm -hmm. like the main issue. Obviously, there are other things like invasive species. Um, there's definitely facilitation, like with the invasive mm -hmm. cattail between, um, you know, the lake level change and the presence and increase of invasive species. I mean, it's a perfect mm -hmm. storm and we're, we basically have cat, mm -hmm. invasive cattail monocultures now. I mean, that's what dominates the wetlands um, here and, and there's just not much diversity. But, um, you know, so, but that's not going to change. That dam's not right. going to go away. You know, right. the seaway is not going to go away. And um, so a lot of these restorations, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, we're, I've given this presentation like on it. I presented on it in uh, the fall. I visited a friend of mine at the University of New Mexico and I gave this presentation. He had me give a talk on it and someone's like, oh, well, well, it seems like the lake levels are the problem. Like, why can't you just change, change that? And it's, well, yeah, we can't. I mean, right. we could, we could blow up the dam, right? No, no I'm kidding. <laughs> but right, like, right. you know, that's literally the only way that, that, that it would change and that's not going to happen. We're not getting mm -hmm. rid of that. And, and we can't because right. it provides a lot of power. I mean, that's clean, mm -hmm. that's cleaner power, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, we, we, we want to rely on more, more of that a little yeah. bit. And, um, you know, the seaway, that's shipping. That's how we get a lot of things, you know, mm -hmm. to, to this area of the world and, and out of this area of the world too. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're, really important things to deal with. And so a lot of the restorations and everything, you know, they're not perfect. We're, they're band-aids. They're not mm -hmm. things that are going to be permanent changes because we're, we're not going to get those permanent changes. No, we're not. And so it's finding like the most sustainable 
you know, restoration methods, I guess, to, mm -hmm. to at least provide a slightly lo long-lasting Band-Aid as opposed mm -hmm. to one that'll just, you know, be changed five years down the line. And that's, that's where, you know, a lot of, you know, our work here at Brockford actually comes in. It's that monitoring. So, hey, was did this do its job? Is this, yeah. is this going to last? Is this actually making a change? How do we do it differently? But mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. It's like, okay, we've got all these monitoring stations. Did this project work? How well did it work? Did it not work? Why didn't it work? And all of that comes from all this monitoring data. Um, yeah. I find it really interesting, the parallels between what the wetlands there are dealing with and the whole environmental situation and the wetlands here, because for us, levees on the Mississippi disconnected the river from the wetlands. Um, so they're no longer getting, you know, that spring pulse of fresh water and sediment and nutrients or whatever that they would have got in normal spring floods. So mm -hmm. our wetlands are sinking, compacting, which is natural, but they're not being offset by new sediment every spring. Um, and, you know, they're getting saltier because there's also no pulse of fresh water, you know, going through there as much every year. So, but it's the same idea, right? Like we have these levees, but we need the river for shipping and everything. Because um, New Orleans is one of the biggest ports in the world. But then at the same time, we're also losing parts of our coast because we have it that way. And so, yeah, it's like trying to balance that in a way that makes the maximum number of people happy, <laughs> I guess. Um, but also makes the most sense because, you know, if we have no wetlands and we just have this river with levees around it, then that doesn't make any sense. And also wetlands provide all these cool services, you know, like they clean water and they capture sediment and they provide habitat for fish and wildlife. Um, and in our case, they uh, absorb storm surge. I don't know what the exact rate is, but, you know, that can be important <laughs> um, to protect, you know, places that should be more inland. Um, and they're just resilient, you know, if you're not messing them up. Um, yeah. So it's very, the parallels are interesting. Yeah. Well, you answered one of my questions. I was going to ask, like, you know, what are the issues, right, with the, with the levees mm -hmm. and stuff and the, the changing of the waterway there? But so what exactly are you monitoring then out there? Yeah. So we, map? yeah, there's 400-ish um, sites across the whole coast. And Every site measures accretion rates, also how much, I mean, you know this, but how much soil or sediment is added on top every, you know, whatever the interval is. Um, the surface elevation using our sets, like the rods in a table. And then we have a hydrology sond at every station that measures on the hour. <laughs> and we go like every four or six weeks and download data. Um, and it, it measures salinity, conductivity, and temperature, and depth. And then... Um, we do vegetation surveys every year at the same same plots. So, um, yeah, and so this project's been going on for about 15 years now. So, yeah, it's a lot of data. And, you know, there's all, Louisiana has the coastal master plan for restoration projects. And um, these sites are all placed in areas strategically, sort of randomly, sort of strategically, you know, to um, capture so areas that had been restored versus not. So there's a comparison there and reference. Um, but yeah, but all that just baseline monitoring data, which on the surface can sound boring, but is so vital. Um, oh yeah, it's, yeah, mm -hmm. it's critical. <laughs> yeah, without that information, you have nothing to base decisions on or to feed into models, you know. Um, right. But yeah, it's super, super important.
Um, yeah, monitoring is so critical for restoration, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, how, how do you know you, what you did actually worked? How do you know mm -hmm. it's actually right? And unfortunately, with, with so many, how so many grants and, you know, funding sources and stuff are set up, that's always the thing that gets, gets cut, right? Mm -hmm. But, it, and, it, and it's really hard to evaluate a restoration, right? Only with only like maybe a year or so of post-restoration monitoring. Yeah, you know, what about nothing. five years, 10 years down the line? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you really, I feel like this might be overkill, but I feel like you really need like 10 plus years to, oh, yeah. to see if it worked because uh, yeah, wetlands are resilient, but it takes a while, you know? Um, so one of the things they're doing down here is they're going, it's, uh, you know, many years process, but they're working on building two sediment diversions to divert sediment from the Mississippi River into Barataria and Breton um, to basins on one on either side of the river. Um, and, well, they're in different areas of the river, but at any rate, uh, and it's very controversial. However, uh, if we want a coast, I mean, this is our best shot. So, you know, but like you said earlier, you can't please everybody and sometimes you please nobody. Um, but I think having those wetlands um, is vital really to Louisiana existing. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I think of when I think of Louisiana, it's the wetlands and, mm -hmm. and the bayous and swamps and stuff down there. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a lot of natural beauty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I would like to know about the Great Lakes Wetland Monitoring Program a little bit. I don't really know that much about it, but I have heard of it. Yeah, so it's um, so it started off as a project. Uh, it started in 2011, um, so only a couple of years after the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative uh, was was started under the Obama administration, and um, so we've been involved since, here at SUNY Brockport since year one. Um, actually, my first field job was uh, doing the bird surveys on it back in 2011. Um, I was actually a senior in high school when I got hired for it, but I needed so many new birds and I've been birding my whole life. So, <laughs> um, oh, cool. so that ended up getting me to come to Brockport, which was not my original plan. <laughs> um, but I, I came to SUNY Brockport after that, then my sophomore year. I ended up working on it for the first four years of the project just as an undergrad, um, which is kind of cool because now I've circled back and <laughs> we got it again. Um, which is nice because I kind of know a lot of the history of the project too and what mm -hmm. went on with it um, early on because I'd fill in on some of the other crews if someone you know had a wedding or something that weekend or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so we had SUNY Brockport, Doug Wilcox, Dr. Doug Wilcox, he's a kind of a wetland science legend essentially. Um, <laughs> he was the one here at SUNY Brockport who, who basically got the got um, got the project here um, he had been here for quite a while. He just retired this spring, which is really mm -hmm. sad because he was, he was my boss. Um, and I worked, at, I worked under him for quite a while. Um, so he, he basically got our portion here at, at Brockport. So we're one of a handful of partners. Um, the project, the program is, is a $10 million grant. Um, it's, it's basically run and administered. Um, Don Uzarski is the main PI at Central Michigan and um, who's an incredible incredible person and has fought for Great Lakes stuff for so long. Um, and, and so they're one of the other main institutions. Uh, Minnesota Duluth is another one. That's where mm -hmm. some of the projects run. Um, we have so many different partners and institutions on this. I yeah. mean, Lake Ontario, you know, we cover a big portion of Lake Ontario. And we're actually the only or one of 
if not the only um, school or partner on the project that actually samples everything. <laughs> a lot of others like, you know, one, one school or one PI will just have like a burden and urine crew or another one will just have a crew sampling fish in this, this section. But we actually sample it all, which is really cool. That is cool. Um, so like just on Lake Ontario, we have us and then we have Environment and Climate Change Canada and, um, and then we have Birds Canada doing Canadian bird sites. So we have three partners just working on Lake Ontario. And then some of the other lakes have, you know, there, there's so many different schools and people involved and which is awesome. I think, um, I wish I could find that, but we have a huge number of students on the project. Doug did a poster at the Society of Wetland Scientists meeting last year um, on all the, it's literally just outside of my <laughs> office here, <laughs> uh, you know, on how many undergrads and graduate mm -hmm. students have gone through over the, what was a, you know, the nine year um, project. And it's, it's really pretty amazing, um, you know, how many students have gotten experience working on this project and, um, or program now, should I say. Yeah. And then, yeah. But the, to explain it really why, why we're doing it, I think one of the biggest things, um, one of the biggest things I think I, I take away from it, one of the biggest, you know, reasons, basically why the project is important, I think, is, you know, we, we Again, we've talked about limited funds, right? And uh, we're very fortunate to have the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. You know, I've, I've gone down and, and lobbied and stuff as well for it. And you know, I think it should be increased you know, even more than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, but we have limited funds. And so EPA needs to know where to spend that money, right, in the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. And so um, you know, wetlands are obviously critically important. So part of the program and how it's set up is that we basically have um, a handful of sites every year. We can't sample all the wetlands, right, in one year. Right. We certainly can't sample them over five years. So a lot of them are basically ranked on, you know, certain criteria. And so we at Brockport, we have a capacity of 24 sites for the summer crew to sample each year. Uh, other crews have like maybe 10 or 12 or whatever, mm -hmm. um, or up to, up to this. And so we sample this randomly selected um, group of sites every year. And so we only go in for, you know, we're only fishing that, you know, a couple zones maybe in that site for, you know, one overnight. So it's not like we're doing thorough surveys of these wetlands, but what we're doing is we're getting snapshots of, of what these wetlands are like for, for fish, for invertebrates, for the veg community, um, for water quality, and then bird, birds and endurance. So you can look then when you combine all those together across five years or more now, um, you know, on a lake-wide scale, you can compare lake to lake really, really well. And then because you're doing, you know, again, you have the same protocols at each site, you can compare, you know, site to site. Like, hey, this, mm -hmm. this site is really, really heavily impacted for, um, you know, everything but birds and inurans, maybe that's an area that we should really divert some of these funds. So when we're trying to prioritize areas for these, for restorations, because we can't restore every wetland, we just don't right. have the funds for it, even though, gosh, that would be wonderful. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we have to prioritize. And that's what this program is really, really, really good for. And in, in figuring out which wetlands, you know, comparing the wetlands to each other, but also comparing the lakes to each other as well. Mm -hmm. And prioritizing certain sites for restoration. And then again, identifying maybe what some of those reference sites could be too, at least for certain taxa. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I know. I wish there was just like unlimited money for restoration, right? That would be cool. Oh my gosh. Unfortunately we need it. I wish, I wish we needed more money for, well, I guess we need more money for it all, but right. it'd be nice if, if we could just protect these pristine areas, but right. we don't find anything that's, I mean, there's nothing out there in the entire globe. I mean, even Antarctica is, is impacted mm -hmm. by human activity. You know, there's no, there's no such thing as a pristine site anymore. There are sites right. that are better than the others, but nothing's pristine. Nothing's immune to human impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so we have. It'd be nice if we could just protect everything, all the pristine sites. But when nothing's like that, then unfortunately, we have to restore everything. Yeah, I totally agree. I know it, it's. I feel the same way, like about the Endangered Species Act. Like, oh, it's great that this exists, and also I wish we didn't have to exist. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally agree. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. One of the wetlands I, uh, I've done a lot of work in it. It's private. It's really privately owned by a private land trust that has about five or six wetlands, uh, Virgin Swamp Preservation Society. Um, which I'm actually on the board of trustees for. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those places near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, another site, but um, it's one of those spots that, you know, we've always said it's really the last like pristine wetland or pristine area in the state but again you look at it and you yeah it is it's, it's super unique i mean there's really it, it has a ton of endemic species to you know it's the only place in new york state where they are there are tons of state and even federally listed species of, across a lot of taxa um but it's uh it's one of those that you look at and are like yeah this is great especially when you've been walking around in invasive dominated Great Lakes goes to mm -hmm. wetlands every day, mm -hmm. which, you know, it really, yeah, most of your plans are invasive. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. And then you go into this and it's like, oh my gosh, the, there are all these incredible, like, you know, there's amazing sedge diversity and there are all these orchids and stuff like that. I mean, which you just never get. And then you, you start looking, well, oh, the, the frag is starting to invade here. Although we do have native frag there. Um, and then we have invasives. Uh, one of my colleagues here at Brockport, um, she's been doing tons of work on this, this new invasive grass called Brachypodium sylvaticum, or slender mm -hmm. false brome, um, which is really more known in the Pacific Northwest. There was a lot of research done there, but it's kind of starting to spread a little bit here in New York. Mm -hmm. And of course, it happened to go right there, a beautiful wetland. Um, of course. This wetland swamp forest area. And then you know, look at other things like, you know, other invasives coming in like cattails. And so, mm -hmm. you know, even this really beautiful pristine area is not totally immune. It still needs mm -hmm. some sort of restoration. And, and the whole thing, you know, with the preservation society is, no, we need to preserve it. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to touch it. And it was really hard to kind of fight through that, that mentality. Um, you know, that kind of preservationist ethic, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, actually get to restore it. It's like, well, it doesn't exist anymore. I wish it could, but like at some point, you know, we screwed it up. Mm -hmm. And so we got to somehow try and fix it because yeah. you know, we feel it's our responsibility. I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough, yeah. it's tough. I totally agree because, you know, if you do something like build a dam or whatever, it's going to have all this cascade of effects, even though that wasn't the intention, right? Like, yeah, it did what you wanted it to do. And it's like you said, providing clean power, which is great. But yeah, then like, it also impacted some wetlands maybe, or what, it, maybe fish can't move. I don't really know that much about fish, but um, 
yeah, same idea with the Mississippi River levees, you know, they, we have this, you know, economic flow now up and down the river, but wetlands are starved of nutrients. Um, so they may look great, but it's, it's not all okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, the time for preservation, unfortunately, was maybe like a hundred something years ago. Yeah, um, at least. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. And now, and then the debate is, a lot of my work was on grassland work for my master's, and I did a lot of that for the DEC, um, our state agency, as well as, as well as wetland work. Um, it's kind of my other, other focus research area. But grasslands are an interesting thing. So, so mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty easy, right, for us to figure out, like, okay, so the, the wetland, right, so it's before the levees went in. We can identify the problem, right, that changed the wetland. But for mm -hmm. grasslands, it's it's also a little bit of a philosophical dilemma. So, you know, do you restore the grassland? Or, you know, do we preserve grasslands in, in the Northeast? Were they, mm -hmm. you know, what's our, you know, the idea for a lot of that stuff is to bring it back to that, like, pre-Columbian ideal, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, we do want to preserve biodiversity here because a lot of those species are struggling in their core range where they may have been 400, 500 years ago. But also that pre-Columbian ideal is pretty pretty wrong anyways, because this area, you know, the you know, Native Americans, indigenous people, you know, they, they did so much burning and, and changing mm -hmm. of the, the land as well before, you know, white people, right, Europeans got there. And so, you know, I, I always feel that argument is wrong. Like there are definitely grasslands here. I mean, there's so many accounts mm -hmm. of that. And, it gets into that dilemma. So, you know, again, prioritizing, like, is this a habitat we want to prioritize a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, what are you managing for? You know, like, if you're managing yes. for some specific species that has very specific needs, yeah, it's, it's there really is no, like, in the U.S., there's no, like, pre-human thing, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, it just doesn't exist necessarily. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. I don't know. But uh, so what did you, so you did yeah, shorebird work. Yeah, so my master's work, I studied migratory shorebird use of uh, rice fields in southwest Louisiana. Uh, yeah, I was studying how shorebirds use rice fields and like how they're making the decision of which rice to use. Um, so I was doing sort of like landscape analysis. Um, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, it turns out they don't like tall trees <laughs> or, yeah, areas immediately adjacent to forested pastures, which makes sense. Okay. Other than that, they didn't really seem to care about much as long as the water wasn't too deep. Yeah, I feel like shorebirds aren't particularly picky sometimes. I mean, certain species are, but if you're talking about the turnstone showing up right away, I was like, oh, that sounds like turnstones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, that's cool. Oh my gosh. That makes sense with the tall tree. That's that's what I found with a lot of my grassland bird work. Like, they don't like even the vegetation isn't big, but as long as they have like open spaces that they can see, if there's a tree there, they're like nope, like a hedgerow. Nope, nope, don't like this area. Yeah, that's where predators live. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, bigger, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. it made sense afterwards. I was like, oh, I feel like I should have known that, <laughs> but. But yeah, it was cool because they would, you know, shorebirds stop over for like multiple days usually um, in a place, unlike a lot of birds, which just like pick up and run right away. 
they weirdly stopped for a few days. And so they would just like load up in this rice field that had, you know, very little water and just like, I assume, gorge themselves <laughs> for days um, and then carry on. But the timing's perfect because the rice fields in Southwest Louisiana are either like damp or like really shallowly flooded, you know, in February and March. Um, when they're seeding the fields or planting the fields with rice, depending on which method they use. Um, and so it's perfect. That's amazing. What did you usually, like, what species did you get usually? Oh, everything. 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 Wow. Yeah. Anything that uses a Mississippi flyaway, everything. Yeah. So, like, every, yeah, literally. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 That's, a, that's a good point cool. with shorebirds. Yeah, that's true. They usually do stay around for a couple days instead of just, like, mm -hmm. zipping out of there. We've had a couple knots at Braddock yeah, Bay, so, red knots, that have been around oh, for a few days now, cool. which like we don't get at all, but they've been sticking. Uh-huh. That's hmm. cool. Yeah, yeah, so that's what they do. They like, so the way my, my surveys were set up, I was just doing roadside surveys, and so, mm -hmm. but it was on an eight-day cycle, because the stopover length is usually like five to seven days, so I didn't want to like hit the same field again and it'd be the same birds, potentially. Although I have no way of knowing if, you know, a bird decides to stay for two weeks or whatever, but that's just the way bird science goes. Um, so I did, had a hundred rice fields that I was hitting every eight days for roadside surveys. Um, it's a lot. Yeah, and it was, yeah, I saw everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was just me in a car, uh, you know, doing roadside surveys and freaking out rice field farmers. <laughs> but, um, Gosh, yeah. Wow, yeah, that's, that's a lot but it was of cool. Ones. I saw all kinds of cool birds. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot. Did you get a lot of? Yeah, I don't. I guess I don't. I can't picture a rice field, honestly. I'm gonna Google that. Oh well, I have zillions of pictures. <laughs> yeah. So when they first start, so the way it works here usually is um, they rotate crops. So it might be crawfish pond all winter, um, which would be a couple feet deep, and then they'll draw it down and let it sit usually for a week or whatever. And then it'll be shallowly flooded or, you know, just like damp. And then they'll seed it with rice, seeds, and then it grows. Like, but it grows pretty, I feel like it grows pretty slowly, but I don't know. I'm not okay. a farmer, but um, it seemed like it would take until, you know, May for it to be taller than a shorebird, you know. Um, okay. And, which at that point, I can't see shorebirds. So no matter what the water depth is, I had to just finish my surveys because I can't see them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but then they shouldn't be migrating at that point still anyway, uh, so it was fine. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, they're just like shallowly flooded, flat places of uniform depth, because um, rice farming is very high-tech, and hmm. um, oh. they use like the, the GPS on the thing, so it's all like super leveled and all that. Yeah, it's, it was really cool. I saw all kinds of cool birds. That's awesome. Do you get, is that where like they see a lot of the rails, like the yellow and black rails and stuff that migrate through there? Are they using the same, like obviously different vegetation heights and stuff like that, but is that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't know that much about black rails, but I can tell you a story about that in a second. But yellow rails, they have this rails and rice festival here in Southwest Louisiana every year where they see yellow rails and rice fields. So I know that they use rice fields, I think, to nest, not positive, or maybe they're just, I don't know enough about their biology, but I know that they're here, <laughs> they use rice in some capacity. Um, my friend Eric would be really mad at me for not knowing that. <laughs> but, 
Yeah, we actually found a yellow rail in a longleaf pine savanna one time, which was very weird. What? Like in the winter. Yeah, it was very weird. That's crazy. Yeah. They're like, they're like non-existent. Yeah, that's crazy. Yes. Yeah, no, so go ahead. Goofy. Sorry. <laughs> just, no, it was just like such a goofy bird. We're like, that's not a handful of sparrow, <laughs> which is what we were going for. Oh, okay. Yeah, because oh, yeah. Yeah, I've also I've also done grassland bird work. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was my first field job actually, was studying henslows in grassland longleaf pine savannas. Um, really? Here. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh. It was cool. I love henslows. They're I mean they're like they're the so most cute. pathetic sounding birds. <laughs> they're so cool. <laughs> I mean that's gotta I be know like that I ever heard one. Oh really? Yeah, it was winters. It was winter here, so I don't know that I ever really heard them. You know? Oh yeah, that's true. Oh wow. So they yeah. winter in Longleaf Pine Savannah? Mm -hmm. Yep. What? Wow, that's crazy. My mind is blown. Yeah. That's amazing. They they're yeah, like cool. yeah, they literally they have like it's got to be the most pathetic <laughs> song of any songbirds. It's got to be. It's got to be. I don't know. I don't, I can't think of anything that's even worse. It's just like, it's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. But they're so cool though. I mean, they're, they're neat and secretive and, and their habitats are so weird in New York because we're like on the edge of the range. So they're like in the crappiest grasslands ever, but <laughs> the obviously they're native, maybe. they're like core range, you know, they're in normal, mm -hmm. like good grasslands. It's, they're so, they're yeah. just weird. That's funny. Yeah, we, so Louisiana historically had like some prairies, um, which has mostly been turned into rice fields. But there is Longleaf Pine Savannah, which is a grassland. Um, it just happens to be a bit damper than normal. Um, okay, wow. Yeah, kind of boggy. Um, oh, super cool. diverse plant-wise with some Longleaf Pines, but not like thickly, you know, it's just like one here, one there. And also um, fire is fairly important, like for most grasslands. Um, oh yeah oh god yeah it's just beautiful out there even in the winter when nothing's blooming and it's just like all these dead grasses like it still just looks awesome because you can just awesome. see how diverse it is yeah wow oh my gosh mm -hmm. yeah the, the whole like coastal plain down there is, is just an incredible diversity and stuff of, of plants and everything i mean you get the mm -hmm. do you get a lot of the pitcher plants like the, all the yes. diversity yes. dang so cool. i need to get down there sometime oh my gosh yeah, you know, if you come down here, let me know. That. I'll hook you up with like, we'll go on an ecosystem tour. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, my, uh, I have a uh, one of my good friends here. He actually worked three years on this project and he's a, uh, um, he's a botanist now at Archbold in Florida. And um, so, but he like travels to see all these cool things. And uh -huh. I think it was like a spider flower or something on some rivers up in like the panhandle of Florida. I'm like what the heck? Like it looks like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> like these ridiculous plants it's just the diversity down there is incredible i, I yeah. i'm jealous <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh i know when you were talking about like the number of species in like a freshwater marsh we have freshwater marshes but we mostly have more brackish and immediate than saline marsh which you know have fewer species in them um i was like man that sounds cool that's lots of species <laughs> yeah well except for more, normally <laughs> right yeah, except when it's all invasives. Well, I guess there yeah. are more species. Your richness increases when they're invasives, but diversity <laughs> <laughs> yeah. goes down. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah Tyson's uh, super opportunistic like that. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, we have um, that virgin swamp site that I was talking about. That's the place that has like, I mean, you can go out there and some of the, it's a, it's a rich fen. And so it's, it's um, one of very few places where it's actively producing marl. So there's like, you know, it's liquefied calcium carbonate that you're walking through out there. And that like, it's just, it's so bizarre. So these marl rooms are these open areas with just, you know, sedge meadow and stuff throughout there and all these sedges and grasses and stuff. And it's, it's just wild. And then you get these hummocks with, with peat and that's where you'll get things like sundew and pitcher plants and stuff growing and everything. But the marl, it's super basic, you know, it's, it's well over, it's over pH seven and stuff like that versus some of the hummocks and some of the surrounding area, which could be much lower. It's, yeah. it's so bizarre. That's cool. It's crazy. We have a fen actually, one of our restoration sites is a, is a coastal fen too. It's a, it's a poor fen, um, but there are some areas that get, you know, a little bit higher pH, um, even though it's still fed by groundwater and, and is a fen. But there are some certain areas where we get patches of, of basically, you know, calcium, calcium carbonate, like, like basically basic stuff plants that just live in, in really basic fens. Yeah. One was, and Carrick's Corderiza was actually the first county record we found last year That's um, cool. of it out there. It was really our first, you know, first trip. I think there were at least like 30 plus 30, 40 species out there in the core fen area, which is like wow. amazing for a coastal yeah. Or a wetland yeah. in general. <laughs> That's <Like> a lot. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Yeah. Crazy. It's, it's amazing what we can get in some of these patches. And like, mm -hmm. I would say those are the areas we want to prioritize for restoration, but it's, yeah, it's so diverse. Yeah. 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 It, it's hard to prioritize. Um, luckily, I don't make those decisions here. There's like a whole team of people and they have models and yeah, yeah. <laughs> all yeah. these criteria. Uh, yeah. It's, oh my god that's yeah, incredible mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's, it's neat well that's why we do what we do right exactly yep. exactly yeah well i feel like i have taken so much of your time um no but, <laughs> yeah well thanks for thanks for being hey i was out in the field today and, and now doing this like that's it's not bad for a friday so yeah for complain. sure <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, this has been fun. I appreciate you uh, talking to me for, you know, way longer than you probably meant to, but. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's cool to yeah, hear about your work and stuff. And it's, it's amazing to see the similarities. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, at some point you'll have to tell me more about the, the work in Louisiana, because I'm interested in like some of the impacts on those, those wetlands and stuff. Is it sounds like it's similarly, some similar issues at least to, to the Great Lakes or at least like Ontario. Yeah, so I can tell you like real quick. Um, it's like this huge swath of wetlands, right? Like the whole coast, but it's been crisscrossed by oil and gas canals. Um, so it's been, you know, split up, segmented that way, which allows saltwater to intrude, yay. Also makes it less stable when hurricanes come through. Um, and like I said, the river's levied, so it's cut off from its natural source of fresh water and sediment. Um, so it's naturally sinking and also, you know, eroding and, from wave action, whatever, and also, yeah, um, just crisscrossed and it's more fragmented. So it's got all of these challenges and then some areas are better than others, like near, nearer to the Atchafalaya River because that river is not levied. Okay. Um, down there, it's you know building more wetlands really rapidly, um, which is what they're hoping to mimic with the sediment diversions when they, those get built. 
they're hoping, I think, to build, start building one of them in like a year and a half. They're working on all the statements and uh, engineering stuff still. Um, yeah, it's a lot of challenges. Um, the coastal master plan though has like a whole slew of projects across the whole coast for each condition because some places just need to be dredged or have the sediment from the river that's dredged put out into the wetlands, you know, to build them up. Some areas need like a hard buffer, like a rock edge or whatever, so it stops eroding. Some are barrier islands that have just been overwashed or, you know, and they just need more sand added to them basically. Um, right. So everywhere, it's just so complicated. Everywhere's different. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we have forested wetlands as well, which have a whole different set of problems. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. It's complicated. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Well, there's so many down there. And then, yeah, the, mm -hmm. the saltwater, freshwater, I feel like that's a, that's a whole, like, salinity. That just adds, like, one more, mm -hmm. one more thing into it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of our freshwater wetlands are floating, so they're not attached. So we call it floton. That's the French word for it, I think. Um, so yeah, these floton marshes, they're just, like, some of them, it's like a mat, basically, and it goes up and down with the water level. Um, some of them are thicker than others. Some of them you can walk on. Some of them you can't. Um, so that's a whole thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a lot. Some of them are like cypress swamps that were logged 150 years ago that are basically not marsh, um, but have all these like canals through them where they drag the trees out or have all these old stumps in them. Um, yeah, it's really wild. Yeah. Can they can they grow back? So, so if the cypress... If if like a cypress swamp was, so obviously they're taking up a lot of water, so I'd guess the water levels would be different. <laughs> but do they, can they regenerate at all? If they're like totally clear cut? They could if they hadn't also messed with the hydrology in the process. So um, a lot of the swamps that had been logged are also now impounded. So they have standing water all the time and cypress need a period of like dryness to really get a hold on life and to survive flooding. They don't often get that. Um, so that, you know, they might like look like nice healthy swamps except there's no understory, you know, cause there's nothing regenerating and all we've got left is like whatever trees grew up before they mess with the hydrology and, you know, hope that they don't all die because they're not regenerating. So some of the restoration projects are that, like trying to fix the hydrology, just because that will, that alone will help, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, and then there's a few that are just, yeah, they just, they've planted cypress trees, but now we have nutria and the nutria just destroy them um, before they can really take hold, so. Yep, wow. <sighs> there's a lot. <laughs> As we know, yeah, that, well, wetlands yeah. are, they're driven by hydrology. That's, that's mm -hmm. what, <laughs> that's the end all yeah. be all. Wetlands only going to be what the hydrology allows it to be. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Easy. Wow. Yeah. That's too bad. They're beautiful. I oh know. God. I know. I've seen, I've seen a few in Florida and they're like, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like you're on a different planet. It's it does feel like that a lot. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to see like an ancient cypress that wasn't logged because it's like hollow or something. Like there's something, some some reason that it wasn't logged. Usually it's hollow or like the top mm. fell off or something. But just seeing how big the tree mm. is, it's like that thing's like seven feet wide. <laughs> like like I, just imagining like a whole swamp of trees that big. I can't. I can't do it. 
You can't yeah. fathom it. Yeah. Is your biggest invasive down there Phragmites? Or do you have other invasive plants that are? That one's pretty bad. Water hyacinth is our main floating aquatic that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it makes these like huge mats that you really can't get through without eat. Sometimes, sometimes it's a struggle for an airboat, but sometimes it's a struggle for a mud boat. Sometimes it's a struggle for everybody. It just makes these huge dense mats. Yeah. Um, that's what water chestnut does. Uh, by the way, so, if you're, yeah. that's, yeah, I'm just looking that up. Oh yeah, that's, it's similar to what water chestnut does. Mm. Yeah, so that's like our main aquatic one. Um, the main plant, probably Phragmites, although I think there's some debate about whether there's also a native version and how to tell them apart, really not all sure. We just call it all Phragmites right now because some taxonomist hasn't figured that out yet, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we also have apple snails, which are new. That's like in the last 10 years. Oh, yeah. Are limpkins increasing there yet? Or are they still? Yeah, yeah. so they, yeah. I had actually never even heard of limpkins like two years ago, but they've had a couple of sightings of like four or five birds in the mm. Morapah Swamp this year, um, mm. which is awesome. And I spent so much time out there and I was like, I wish I knew what I was looking for while I was out here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, so I have to keep an eye out. But yeah, they've, they've gotten some pictures of them and everything. It's so cool. That's crazy. Yeah, as I know, I know they've they've been increasing because of this invasive. Just cool, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, a yeah. one sort of positive benefit. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. oh my gosh. Neat. Yeah, I, I remember seeing. I, I was just asking because I remember seeing um, at the last SWS meeting, Society of Wetlands. Do you go to those, by the way? No, I haven't been to a conference since grad school, but okay. I do know. I do know about it. Yeah. Yeah, the last one they had a couple, they had a big symposia on uh, frag. And I remember they were talking about, in one of the ones they were, they were covering, you know, some positives, right? So some some things that frag has actually been, actually kind of used for. And I remember one was talking about the, um, um, basically preventing shoreline erosion in the delta mm -hmm. down there. Yeah, yeah, the, everything down there is basically frag, but it's super mm -hmm. resilient and like has these, you know, and it's dense, so it like traps all this vegetation or taps all the sediment, I mean. So that's yeah. good. Um, and it grows right. so fast that that's good where it is anyway. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, and one of those trade-offs, so it, it, it is providing like, and I, I wonder with like, you know, some of those like cattail and, and frag, not to just keep going on, but you know, it's like, you know, again, those ecosystem services that wetlands provide, mm -hmm. like, okay, yes, they're invasive, and we do have the, uh, I mean, I'm still a fan of getting rid of them, but, <laughs> um, but like, yeah, we do have habitat loss and degradation, but at the same time, either providing ecosystem services, like what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. um, and also like with climate change, you know, storing carbon, storing greenhouse gases and stuff mm -hmm. too. Uh, have they been, have they replaced? So in those areas where they're, they're being used, have they like replaced native vegetation that did the same that's been lost or are they kind of finding their own niche at all? It's hard to say because that area is so dynamic, um, like the Mississippi River Delta, it changes so quickly. Um, hmm. I have only ever seen it be Phragmites and Spartina patens mixed. Okay. 
um, usually also covered in some vines. Uh, that's a pretty common mixture there as well as a lot of places. But there, all, there are also marshes that are more uh, normal, I guess, you know, different Spartinas mm -hmm. and stuff, not frag. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly the answer to that, I guess. Um, hmm. It seems to be working for there, at least. So. Yeah, that's good. I mean, yeah, it's one thing, it, something like, you know, it's just awful and there's literally no, <laughs> zero positive benefits yeah. out of it, right? <laughs> but at least something, at least can do something, provide some yeah. sort of service. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, crazy. Exactly. All right. Yeah, well, really. thank. Yeah. Thanks again. Awesome. Well, thank you and have a good weekend. Uh, All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again. I appreciate it. It's been great. Hey, y'all. It's Rachel here. I wanted to ask you a favor. I would love it if you go over to Facebook, if you have Facebook, um, to Storytellers of STEM. The website is facebook.com slash storytellers of STEM or it's at storytellers of STEM and go like my page and go tell your friends if you enjoy the podcast um, because if I get the page, or we together actually, get the page to a thousand likes, I will do an AMA and y'all can ask me anything. And that would be fun and enjoyable and entertaining. So help me out and then we'll do an AMA and it'll be fun. Also follow me on Twitter at Flying Cypress so I can share all of the cool storytellers of STEM stuff with you. Thanks. Hey y'all, it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So. Here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy.